Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for this Wellbeing Wednesday podcast. These podcasts provide a forum where you can listen in as members share successful strategies on well-being and resiliency in both their personal and professional lives. My name is Anna Legridop, and I will be your host today for ASHP's Wellbeing Wednesday podcast. With us today is Dr. Lynn Christman. As a Barron Centennial Professor of Pharmacy and immediate past dean, of the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy and professor of psychiatry at the University of Texas Dell Medical School. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Prisman. My pleasure. Let's get started today to talk about this podcast that's titled Wellbeing Wednesday, Applying a Systems Approach to Address Burnout. Now, as a brief reminder, we talk about this quite a bit on these podcasts, but just in case people haven't heard, ASHP is a formal sponsor of the National Academy of Medicine Action Collaborative on Clinician Wellbeing and Resilience. We have been since 2017. We've been working in parallel since then to support the efforts of the Action Collaborative, but then also advance resources and programming and support for the pharmacy profession and specifically our members. And the purpose of the Action Collaborative, it's now being extended for another two-year cycle. So this is the third two-year cycle that we're continuing support and continuing to provide a lot of commitment to this as as an important issue for the pharmacy profession, but the healthcare professionals overall. The goals of the Action Collaborative are to improve baseline understanding and to raise visibility of the issue. And, And we've done that. And now we're rounding the corner to this third goal to advanced evidence-based multidisciplinary solutions. So raising awareness of the problem and then really trying to advance solutions to address it. And that's where the consensus study comes in. A few years ago, then there was a consensus study that was supported that was titled Taking Action Against Clinician Burnout, a Systems Approach to Professional Well-Being. And this consensus study is one that you, Dr. Chrisman, contributed to significantly. And so we're going to talk about that today because it's a good reminder if people haven't heard about it as a resource, but then also to highlight the award that the report was given just in this year, 2021. And I do want to acknowledge, Dr. Chrisman, that you have been so generous with your time on this topic. You've been so committed to it, both with the work of the National Academy of Medicine, with the consensus study, but then also with the pharmacy profession. And and now here you are again, giving us more time. Thank you. So let's, let's get started. Can you provide, just as background, some general reflections on the consensus study as a whole, such as the purpose of it and the charge of you as a committee member? Uh, yes. The Action Collaborative at the National Academy of Medicine had recognized that that burnout is, is, is a major issue among healthcare clinicians, and that systems that systems issues were extremely important in looking at, uh, at burnout and the fact that, that the prevalence of burnout seemed to be increasing o- over time among healthcare professionals. And so the National Academies formed the consensus committee that was a diverse group of individuals, physicians, nurses. I was the only pharmacist. There was, there was a dentist. 
there was a medical fellow, there was an there was a healthcare attorney, a healthcare executive. So it really was an interprofessional group, uh, really representing healthcare. And we were asked to look at the prevalence of, of burnout for different professionals, causes of burnout, both at the team level, at the healthcare organization level, and external factors that influence healthcare clinicians and increase their stress. To look at a burnout among learners, whether those be pharmacy students, medical students, or the, the residents, fellows, so learners at, at, at all levels, and also recognizing that all of us are, as clinicians, are, are learners as well. And so we have to look at how learning affects us as, as, as clinicians. And then to make recommendations regarding how to address burnout and improve clinician well-being and also to uh, to recommend a research agenda to address all the unanswered questions regarding causes of burnout and solutions uh, for burnout. There's more evidence about the causes than there is about the potential solutions. That's true. Thank you for summarizing this. It's it's so for for those of us that remember the 1999 to Air's human report and then the report that came 2 years after that the crossing the quality chasm you know, one was trying to do that, raise awareness of the issue, but then also advance solutions. And there's been a lot of comparisons, this work to that work, where some people have said, you know, to, to care is human. And then that's really where the Action Collaborative has focused their attention. And then the consensus study now helps with that. Again, trying to reach some solutions to make some meaningful change. So with that, can you outline some of the main recommendations from the consensus study? Sure. I, I think it's important to start out by looking at the fact that burnout is primarily a systems issue. In fact, it's it's estimated that probably the systems issues account for about 80% of burnout, where the individual factors such as resilience, well-being, personality, and those types of things are responsible for burnout. And burnout's not a disease. Uh, it's, it's defined by the World Health Organization as being a, a workplace phenomenon. And in ICD-10, it's, it's also defined as, as, as a workplace phenomenon. It really has three major, three major characteristics, extreme emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, which is most commonly expressed as cynicism, and then the feeling that you're not appropriately performing well in a workplace or not even recognized for, for the work that you do. And the, the system is really at three different levels. There's the team that provides the healthcare, the frontline healthcare workers, both clinical and non-clinical members of the team. There's the healthcare organization, whether that's a 35-bed hospital or a 10,000-employee multi-system healthcare organization with hospitals and, and clinics, and also the external environment, the payers, very important, the payers, the regulators, whether those are boards of pharmacy, boards of medicine, departments of health, accreditors such as Joint Commission, the federal government, whether that's CMS, NIH, Health and Human Services. So all those, exter- those external factors are, are, are very, very important in terms of looking at how clinicians are able to do their jobs. So really, the, the primary recommendation was that we really have to redesign clinical systems so that we focus on activities that, one, improve patient care and enable clinicians of all flavors to provide high-quality care in, in the most efficient manner possible, and that we intervene to, to target factors that impact 
clinician well-being and and therefore uh, contribute to, to burnout. And again, these these systems issues have to be looked at to those three different levels that impact clinician well-being. So there were six major overarching goals that the consensus committee came up with. One was to create positive work environments. Two was to create positive learning environments. Three was to decrease administrative burden. Four was to enable efficient technology solutions to improve the healthcare workplace. Four was to support clinicians in the workplace and emotionally. And then six was to the recommendations for a research agenda to address all the unanswered questions regarding both causes, but most importantly, to look at at solutions uh, because it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution in terms of what we need to do as a society to improve a clinician well-being. So, and we really sort of framed it in terms of adding a fourth dimension to the the triple aim to where it's a quadruple aim because if we don't improve clinician well-being, we're not as likely to be able to address the other three components of the the triple the, the triple aim. Thank you for that. And and you're right, in order to reach that transformative change, it's going to require multiple interventions. And I really appreciate that you emphasize the need for that systems-based approach and and that this is a workplace phenomenon. There's, you know, our ASHP policy talks about the need for both, the shared responsibility between the organization and the individual. Of course, there are some individual responsibilities to bolster coping skills and resiliency as a competency can be improved. But as we have said within the Action Collaborative, we can't resilience our way out of this. And so in recognizing, like you said, the real cause of this is a systems issue and uh, requires leadership over that. So as you have reflected on your contributions to the effort and, and the things that you've learned as a pharmacist, can you share what you considered related to the pharmacy profession and some of those key takeaways that you feel pharmacy leaders with a big L and a little L uh, and those within the pharmacy workforce should take to heart? Yeah, I think there are a number of things that I think that are really important for, for, for pharmacy. And, you know, leadership has to own this. And that really begins with the board of trustees of the healthcare organization holding the C-suite accountable for the well-being of, of their employees. And so that means that department heads of, of all departments, both clinical and non-clinical, need to make this a priority as well. And so, you know, directors of pharmacy or vice presidents or pharmacy services, whatever the title is in the healthcare organization, really have to own this. And there needs to be an individual in the department that is accountable for making sure that clinician well-being is addressed and works with other with other similar individuals in other departments as well as as a chief wellness officer for for the health for the healthcare organization another general principle that we adopted is that we're more likely to have efficient work processes that work for frontline healthcare workers if we empower clinicians, including pharmacists, to be actively involved in developing the, the, the policies and procedures that determine our work, I mean, the, the people who do the work should be able to best determine what is most efficient in terms of looking at work processes. And so I think that it's extremely important that directors of pharmacy empower their, their, their pharmacists to be actively involved in developing the, the policies for the department and, and the procedures for how, the, how, how work is performed. Another thing that came out of the, the consensus committee, and 
there's not as much evidence on this as we would like. Of course, that's true with most things in healthcare. But active, well-functioning interprofessional teams appear to improve clinician well-being as well as improve quality of care for uh, quality of care for patients. And, and and that includes pharmacists as, as being active members of those interprofessional teams as well. But one of the things that's really important is, is the design of those teams. And studies have indicated that the design of interprofessional teams is extremely important because if all one does is, is move the, the burden from one professional to an, another professional with a different title, we really haven't accomplished our goal. All we've done is just switch the, the burnout from one discipline to another. So the design of those teams and adequate support for those teams is, is extremely important. Across all disciplines, decreasing administrative and paperwork burden is extremely important. And what little research has been performed in, in, in health systems and, and looking at burnout among pharmacists and pharmacy residents has indicated that administrative burden and, and paperwork burden and lack of clinical time is, is a major contributor to uh, to burnout among pharmacists. And we got to provide the resources to pharmacists to to improve their well-being. That means you know time in a workplace to for pharmacists to work on the things that are really important to them. It's been found in a number of different types of organizations, both within and outside of healthcare, that if you give employees as little as 10% of their time, optimally 20%, but as little as 10% of their time to work on a, an initiative or a project that's important to them, as well as the healthcare organization, that you improve clinician well-being, you improve satisfaction, and are, are likely to also decrease turnover among, among your, your, work, your workforce. We all have requirements for continued licensure, and increasingly for pharmacists for recertification of board certification. Pharmacy departments need to support those efforts as well, wherever possible with, with financial resources, but also with, with release time uh, so that pharmacists are having to, to maintain their continuing competence totally on their own time. Because one of the other things that's been found to contribute to, to burnout is really not having the adequate work-life balance, or what I like to refer to as as work-life integration. And so we need to make sure that we have the the, the appropriate balance on on those things. Right. Thanks to that. We followed your lead and we we refer to it as integration as well. And you've provided some, some objective and productive ways for leaders to support their staff. Like you said, looking to provide 10 to 20% of protected time to do the work or to provide the relief for that, continuing their competence. And those are definitely some tangible things that could move forward and provide some immediate release of pressure. Other examples that you've heard where institutions are taking meaningful action towards the recommendations that are outlined in the consensus study report? Uh, yes, I think probably the or- the organization that, that's... Uh, probably the furthest along that I'm aware of, and I'm certainly not aware of every healthcare organization and what they're doing to address clinician well-being, but Stanford Medical Center has really been exemplary in terms of being a leader in this issue. They have a chief wellness officer who's at, who's at a high level in the organization, and they've really applied principles of clinician well-being into all their strategic planning processes, so they make sure that they're, they're addressing clinician well-being with, with every strategic objective that they have. 
Virginia Mason Kirkland Medical Center in the D.C. suburbs, and Kirkland is actually uh, an ambulatory care clinic, and they've interwoven clinician well-being into everything they do in the organization. And specifically, one of the things that really jumped out at me was the fact that they're really focusing on interprofessional teams with a clinical pharmacist being a really active member of those teams. And the data that that they've collected in terms of in terms of looking at out financial outcomes, is it really the, the pharmacist's time uh, really is in terms of improving the efficiency of operations in the clinic uh, more than pays for the pharmacist's salary uh, most of the time and allows physicians to really to focus on those complicated diagnostic issues that uh, where they really need to be spending more times uh, and instead of instead with medication management uh, for uh, for, for, for chronic disease states. Uh, Ohio State University Medical Center has also been very actively involved. And again, looking at, you know, looking at redesigning their, 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 their workforce so that the clinician well-being is, in, is integrated in, into decision-making. For medical students and nursing students, I'm, they've also looked at curricular time. They, they're me- measuring well-being among the students. In fact, all the recommendations that that have come out is that you know confidentially and anonymously measuring employee well-being on at least an annual basis, as well as asking about the causes for lack of well-being, is is, is extremely important. And, and so Ohio State has integrated that in, both into the their medical center settings as well as into their into their professional schools. Brigham and Williams and Children's in in, in Boston. Has totally has totally redesigned their healthcare processes so that clinician well-being is is considered an, an important part uh, of looking at 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 the work uh, that they do. So I think you know there, there are examples all over the country where this is this is being addressed. Is it as widespread as we would like? No, I think that uh, COVID hit just a few months after the consensus report was released. And so people went into crisis mode in terms in terms of operations, and I think that that's really sort of negatively affected being able to make changes specifically look at clinician well-being. But on the other hand, COVID has has dramatically increased the stress and the burnout on healthcare workers, uh, both clinical and and non-clinical, and we really need to use COVID as 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 a reason to address a clinician well-being very, very serious in, 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 the, in the post-COVID era. Or as I like to say, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. Let's learn for this and, and redesign our healthcare systems in the post-COVID era so that we focus on improving patient care and focus on the, the well-being of the clinicians and other healthcare workers that provide the care. That will be a, a really important call to action. Like you said, there this work was... There was so much commitment and energy to this work prior to COVID, and and then COVID hit. And within the Action Collaborative, we often call it the COVID pivot because it did all of a sudden there was a more of a need for that traumatic support and all the other pressures that are being applied during the pandemic. and And we need to learn from previous pandemics. There's there is evidence for even back SARS and influenza and even the pandemic, uh, the Spanish flu in 1918, there's lessons to learn of how, how we can make sure that the resiliency of the healthcare workforce is maintained after something like this. So I, I do, I'm hopeful that this will continue to get the attention that it needs. And 
something you said is is really important too with those examples is that those organizations have embedded it as a value within their systems, not an issue to address and then check off the list, but to embed it within their strategic planning or to commit to it as a cultural value is so important. And all four that you mentioned have websites where information can be accessed. So the, the Virginia Mason example you gave, Ohio State, they have case studies with the Action Collaborative that are, that are available. And, and what's exciting is, as you said, there's been demonstration of ROI and then the, the return on value even too, the VOI. So um, thank you for those. I think that's extremely important that, that uh, employee well-being be embraced as a core value of, of, health, of healthcare organizations. Because if you look at at the data, a large percentage of, of healthcare professionals and surveys indicate that they're they're looking at changing jobs in the very near future because of stress in the workplace. And again, this goes across all professions: medicine, nursing, pharmacy. A really alarming percentage are looking at leaving their their profession altogether and, and going to do uh, uh, going to do something else. Uh, they're less productive in the workplace. They're they're more likely to make more likely to make errors. So if you look at the value proposition from a financial standpoint, I think it's really a, a, a no-brainer. Uh, having satisfied employees is good for organizations and results in, in, in better work productivity and, and less turnover. Yeah, thank you for that. It, re- it reminds me, and now all this is pre-information pre-COVID, but Medicine has has done the math on this to look at the attrition from the medical profession. And at least before, it was um, the loss of seven graduating medical classes a year from the profession, either to early retirement or leaving the profession altogether, the, the discipline altogether. And then even more tragically, the loss of at least two graduating classes due to due to suicide. I think we need to do that in pharmacy too. We should do that math. I, I think nursing is working on it, but anybody who's in the research realm, I, that's important to quantify that potential loss of talent and engagement. That's a really important point because the, the data among physicians indicates the prevalence of suicide is twice as high among physicians who experience significant burnout as compared with those that do not. And that's not to mention the, the high percentage that, that express undue anxiety, depression, uh, and substance abuse uh, secondary to burnout as well. Right, right. Well, thank you for your reflections on that. And a big reason why we wanted to connect with you. So th- this work kicked off, it was end of 2018, if I'm correct, uh, October, November. 2018 was our first meeting. Right. And you you had a large task ahead of you within 11 months You that the committee worked to finalize this report. So we saw it come forward towards the end of 2019. But but here we are in 2021. And we just learned that the American College of Healthcare Executives has awarded the James A. Hamilton Book of the Year Award to this consensus study report, which is very exciting. So I wanted to hear what your reaction was when you learned about that. Well, first, I was extremely surprised. I'm not sure that any of us expected to, to receive a an award from a national organization for the for the consensus report. And I was also really excited. Of course, it always feels good to be honored, but I think more importantly, the fact that a national organization like the National Association of Healthcare Executives has chosen this consensus book 
for their Outstanding Book Award, at least sends me the message that C-suite executives are taking this topic very, very seriously. And if, if the, the C-suite doesn't take it seriously, then it's not going to be a priority in the healthcare organization. So hopefully this is reflective of the majority of, of healthcare executives in, in, in our country, that this is going to be a priority uh, within their healthcare organizations and that we're, and that we're going to see uh, uh, action steps taken to, to address clinician well-being in, in, in the workplace. Right. Thank you for that. That continues to be the, the focus within the Action Collaborative as well as is really reaching that executive leadership and then making sure it comes down to the department level and even down to the clinician manager level too. And that's important. Yeah, I think one of the other things that's really important is that, you know, a lot of pharmacists and health systems serve as preceptors for schools and colleges of, of pharmacy. And there's been very, very little research done uh, looking at burnout among student pharmacists, but we have a lot to learn from what's been done in nursing and medicine because there's really no reason to, ex- to expect that that student pharmacists are any different. And clinical rotations are extremely stressful on students. In fact, some research has been done in one medical school when they looked at school-wide initiatives to improve medical student well-being. They were able to improve it in the preclinical years, but as soon as medical students went on clinical rotations, their burnout scores shot up to where they were before they had, had made the initiatives. Students don't always feel valued in, in the workplace. They're oftentimes, or with preceptors who can send a message that they really don't want students with them. And sometimes department heads don't support having students in, in the workplace. And oftentimes students don't feel like they're really even accepted as part of the healthcare team. So I think it's, you know, it's really important that all the schools and colleges really rely on, on all of pharmacy to make sure that students receive the kind of experiential education they need in order to be to be competent and excellent pharmacists. In fact, I'm biased that experiential education is probably the most the most important part of pharmacy education. I know personally, once I got into to the clinical workplace, I was a lot more interested even in the basic sciences than I was just sitting in sitting in the classroom because I saw the relevance of knowing about the Krebs cycle, for example, to somebody that had diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, and so, you know. We really need to to make sure that we keep working on really active, positive partnerships between schools of pharmacy and pharmacy departments and pharmacy leaders to make sure that we we have positive experiences for for student pharmacists and for pharmacy residents, because the the bit of research that's been done among pharmacy residents has indicated that a non-supportive residency program director or a non-supportive pharmacy director was an independent predictor of burnout among uh, PGY1 residents. Thank you for reinforcing that. And it, it speaks to the fact that the clinical learning environment was an important aspect of the consensus study report too, but you've raised some really important points. At best, that experiential education when done right can really bolster the didactic learning, as you said, and then, but then even moving forward, we need to be using a lot of care with our future generations of pharmacists. And oftentimes when we do connect with, with residents on this topic, they'll say, I really wish somebody would talk to the RPD about this. So thank you for having that uh, really genuine and transparent discussion on that part of it. Yeah. And I think part of this is an artifact of, of how healthcare used to be 
And it really evolved out of traditional medical training where it was learning by intimidation. And that's not, not the best way for people to learn. Right. So true. Well, do you have any other final thoughts or observations that you would like to share with the listeners of this podcast based on your experience and your leadership and overall efforts to improve well-being and resilience? I guess I would really challenge pharmacists and pharmacy technicians that if they don't really understand a whole lot about burnout or clinician and employee well-being, you know, to, to, to go on the National Academy's website and, and at a minimum, read some of the, 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 the summaries, both from the consensus report, as well as from the action collaborative and the case studies that are there, looking at what some healthcare organizations have done uh, to, to improve clinician well-being. Because we know the first step is being aware of the problem and what contributes to the problem. If we're not, we don't have awareness, then we really can't address change at all. Thank you for that. And you're right, there's so much information out there, but a, a great place to start and a trusted place to start. I have to close by, you know, plugging the ASHP certificate program on pharmacist well-being. I'm very excited about that that being uh, released uh, sometime uh, this year, because at least based upon the titles and the objectives, I think it's going to be an outstanding and, and extremely informative program. Thank you for saying that. We hope so too. We're working hard to wrap it up. We're so honored that you contributed to it. We're trying to talk about things like caring for yourself and others, of course, supporting the individual, but then how do you lead transformative change? How do you build cultures that are that support and are committed to well-being and resilience? And to our understanding, there's not really anything like it out there. A lot of them are just really focused mostly on the individual, which again is an important piece of it, but not as you said, probably only 20% based on the evidence and the need to look at those systems drivers. And I believe pharmacists, we, not just I, we, if pharmacists are system, no systems, the medication safety experts, no systems, and hoping to bring some of that into the certificate program as well. So thank you for your comments on that. My pleasure. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Lynn Chrisman for joining us to discuss this Wellbeing Wednesday, applying a systems approach to address burnout. If you haven't had the chance, I encourage you to access the wellbeing.ashp.org where you can learn more about access some resources, also seeking the National Academy of Medicine Action Collaborative information as well. And then, as you mentioned, we, we do expect for the certificate program on well-being and resilience to be released in spring of 2021. So please be sure to join us here each month for more information on well-being and resilience. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.